Tēnā koutou, good evening and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. After weeks of detailed testimony, the Grace Mullane murder trial ended with a guilty verdict. But the convicted man's defence team has been accused of putting the victim on trial by delving into explicit detail of her sex life. High-profile QC Marie Dyberg disagrees and tonight she'll put the case for protecting a defendant's right to prove their innocence. Then, Simon Bridges is here, ahead of National's Law and Order announcement tomorrow. With courts backlogged, he's putting judges on notice, and criminals too. I don't think you somehow solve issues um, by, uh, in Jacinda Ardern's words, being kind and going soft on crime. But first, to Grace Mullane. The jury delivered its verdict and then came the anger on social and in mainstream media. Pent-up fury at the way Grace Mullane and some of the women witnesses in her murder trial were portrayed through defence questioning. There's a balance, of course. Defence lawyers have to do their job. But where do you draw the line on what is acceptable and fair? Criminal defence lawyer Marie Dyberg, QC. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Since the verdict, there has been a lot of criticism of the defence team's arguments. They've been accused of victim-blaming, of delving too deeply into Grace Mullane's sexual history. Is that fair? No, that is not fair. I think what people may not understand is that by the time you get to trial, there have been a number of pre-trial arguments in a lot of areas. One argument would have to have been how far can the defence go in introducing evidence of her sexual experience with other people. Now that is in the legislation, it's under section 44, you do not mention anybody's prior sexual experience with somebody else unless and until you have the court order, leave of the judge. Mm. And so, and then how far do you go? So if you do get leave, you are restricted. So there are limitations in place for yes. defence, of what you're saying. What do you make of those limitations? Is the threshold appropriate? Is the threshold too high from a defence perspective? From a defence perspective, it is very, very high. For you to qualify to talk about and bring evidence of somebody's prior sexual experience, it's a very high hurdle to get over. And for many of us, we just feel like in defending somebody charged mm. of sexual offences, it used to feel like you had one hand tied behind your back. Mm. It just seems to be now it's two hands behind your back. It's very, very hard. And they judges do not easily allow that evidence in. So in this case, because the crime or alleged crime at the, at the stage of the trial, it was specifically related to an incident that occurred around sex, Grace Mullane's sexual history was considered by the court to be relevant to proceedings. That's right. And in this particular case, which will be an unusual case, you won't often have a situation where all these factors come together, but the defence was this was consensual, this was high-risk sex, this involved something that was extremely risky and mm. potentially life-threatening, but the deceased, Melaine, consented to this, and you can't do that in a vacuum. But, but, but the deceased, of course, didn't, didn't consent to dying. And a lot of people no, no. would have watched the proceedings in court and said, here is a young woman who has been killed, who has absolutely no capacity to answer any of these claims, who, has, who is in no position to defend themselves or, to, or indeed to defend their reputation. Mm. 
Should the victim not have some space in which their reputation is protected? Not at all, because what they engaged in uh, was something that was seen to be, well, this is how it is about. For a lot of people, they think, well, I wouldn't consent to choking or being, you know, somebody strangling me. But those who do engage in that sort of conduct, you have to spell out just what's involved. How far do you go? And from what the evidence is mm. and what people know about it, you go a very long way uh, until you tap out. Alcohol inhibits you. Alcohol stops you from realising that you're getting into a danger period. Okay, I want, I want to throw a different uh, example at you, and that's the, the Malcolm Brewer case. In the, the trial over Susan Burdett's death, Susan Burdett was described by, by people who knew her as, as being a gentle, mild-mannered, sensitive person. Malcolm Brewer took the stand and, without presenting every, any evidence, described her as being a regular drug user, as being someone whom he, he met for sex. He was accused by the prosecution of essentially dragging her reputation through the mud without any evidence whatsoever. So how is that fair? How can someone who is defending themselves attack the victim of a murder in an instance where, in an instance where, the, where the murder victim essentially has no way to defend their reputation? Well, that's when you don't have somebody who's still alive, you know, for that. But, in but that... it's the same as Grace Mullane in that sense, though, isn't it? No, because in that particular case, it would be very unusual mm. for people to say, I will consent to somebody putting their hands around my throat for a period of time and choking, choking me. Most people would react and say... How can anybody consent to that or say that that's a good, you know, good well, some, thing some to people, do? Some people might say that. You know, um, and a number of people would. And in this case, you had to establish, mm. you had to set up that that's what this person, the deceased, engaged in. Otherwise... Mm. Well, let me ask them, what about, what about the, the nature of the media coverage of this? Do media have to take some responsibility in, not, not necessarily the accuracy of their reporting, but in the, in the excruciating, at times, detail with which they reported this case? Yes, and it may well have been that a judge could have said, you will not report certain aspects of this case, and they may well have done that. Should that have happened? No, I don't think it did, because I think the public had to understand there was so much publicity in the beginning where it was misconceived that this was almost like somebody mm. was completely innocent and some stranger came out and without even any sort of lead-up to it, Engaged. Okay, I, I want to I step away from the Grace Mullane case, and it's very important we make this distinction. The Sexual Violence Legislation Bill has just passed its first reading at Parliament. Now, this is a bill that relates to sexual violence cases, so it doesn't relate to murder. The, these laws would not uh, have applied to the Grace Mullane case. Essentially, the bill aims to protect victims from what are considered to be the more traumatic elements of court processes, um, cross-examinations, questions about their sexual history, um, questions about clothing they were wearing at the time of an alleged sexual attack. What do you make of these proposed changes? Well, they're not really changes, Jack, and they are not victims um, until a jury or a judge finds somebody guilty or you plead guilty. So we've got to keep that in mind. They are just a complainant. And now and today, if you tried in a jury to try and belittle somebody for what they wear mm. 
or their prior sexual experience, you have to get leave of a judge now. It's been in place for a very long time. I cannot talk about mm. um, sexual experience but, with someone else. But, but, but what about the, the, the thousands of women who might be watching this right now who, who may themselves have been victims of sexual crimes who, who listen to those words, you are not a victim, you are a complainant. How do we get those women to come forward? And how do we get them to engage with the, with the justice process when we know that for so many of them, it hasn't been, that the, you know, they've been adverse to engaging with the justice process? If they only knew how protected they were in the court system, they may come forward early. Unfortunately, we've had misrepresentations of how the jury system works in a courtroom. You do not yell or thump or um, belittle and and, so and victim one in, one in three sexual violence cases reported to police goes to court. Just one in three. Only one in ten ends, ends in a conviction. So why do you think that, that women in particular and victims of sexual crimes have such issues with the court process? Well, part of the problem is that investigation by the police does not take place in sexual cases. If it was an assault, if it was fraud, if it was anything mm. else, the police would look at the evidence, they'd weigh it up and they'd say, really, does this, you know, does this really weigh up? And it's juries that listen to this evidence and say, it doesn't weigh up. Are you saying that like women are... are uh, not telling the truth? Oh, some women don't. And absolutely, if you ask a police officer, they will tell you about the cases that they go back and women admit and they make but it there up. But there are many women who, who are telling the truth about being yes, attacked, women are. in particular, who don't feel like they are supported by the justice process as it yeah, stands. Well, and, and I've got defendant clients who feel absolutely hamstrung in trying to have a fair trial mm. as well. So there's two sides to this. But we do have cases where people admit that they have told lies, that they've made this up. So what will be the impact if these laws pass? Well, the impact is going to be far more restrictive because at the moment, whatever sexual history you may have with a defendant may well have some bearing on what the case is all about. So that is one of the concerns, is that the discretion for judges mm. to weigh up when you can bring evidence of what has happened before is going to be taken away. Can you still get a fair trial under these laws? Uh, no, I think it's getting harder and harder for a defendant to get a fair trial. The rules are just making it so hard uh, to to really be able to sort of run a defence. We don't victim shame, we do not abuse complainants in the courtroom. It is a myth, it is untrue, and judges are being maligned because they don't allow that either. It doesn't no. happen in the courts, and juries would never, ever accept us behaving in that way. It would get us nowhere. But we've got to get to the truth. The consequences are huge. Mm. You ruin lives for someone who is wrongfully convicted. And the law says, test the evidence. Marie Dyberg, QC, we have to leave it there. Thank you for Thank your time. Thank you, Jack. Our political panel is coming up, and we'll be talking about New Zealand First's donation drama. Let us know if you think voters deserve to know more about who donates to political parties in New Zealand. Plus, the government's lack of progress on poverty is under the spotlight. Green co-leader Marama Davidson fronts up tonight. 
But next, John Key supports moving Auckland's port north. So too does Helen Clark. I think it is a legitimate, serious question to ask. But will Simon Bridges back the move north? Find out after the break. Kia ora te whanau, welcome back. National wants to introduce performance targets for courts. As part of their law and order discussion document, the rest of which will be released tomorrow, Simon Bridges says he wants to increase the financial threshold for the disputes tribunal and even run courts at night and at the weekend. Justice Minister Andrew Little has recently addressed delays in the court system by committing to hire more judges, and it should be noted that National capped the number back in 2016. But Simon Bridges sat down with me this afternoon, and I began by asking how performance measures would actually work. Both in criminal, I think certainly in civil, are taking. The system is in civil justice that is non-criminal is broken, right? Mm -hmm. And in criminal, it's taking too long. You've got a situation where um, if you are a defendant, actually if you're in remand, that is you're in custody, um, you by the time you get to your hearing, you've probably spent longer than the sentence you would have received mm -hmm. in custody, right? So something's got to give. So I think there's three or four things um, that we are proposing. So I think we do need to be creative and bold. One of them is performance measures. I mean, what we're talking about. Yeah, what would it be? What we're talking about is the idea of targets and results. We've seen these applied in other areas, you know, whether it's DHBs uh, or, or the like. And, and it's the view that, you know, actually, if at the moment you're trending up towards two years for a defended hearing, how about setting a target of one year, which is much better and justice so what happens if for they don't everyone the concerned. Well, I think, you know, some people may like it, you might say the judges, but actually you know, I think the notion of something akin to league tables is potentially part of that. That is the so idea. What, again, so what happens if they don't if they don't hit their targets? Well, well, I think sunlight is a remarkable disinfectant. If we are able to see city by city or region by region what the sort of time frames for court cases mm. is, I believe that spurs a competitive impulse and that does get movement happening uh, within the system. I mean, you've proposed uh, running courts over, over longer time periods, so, yep. so courts that run in the evenings, run at the weekend, perhaps. How do you ensure that, that just outcomes aren't sacrificed for the sake of expediency? I would argue, certainly in civil justice, the system today prioritises the theoretically perfect outcome. The problem is, that is at the expense of both affordability and mm. efficiency. So you've got this system where it's effectively a war of attrition. The lawyer is incentivised to take every and argue every point, and it's survival of the fittest at the end. The person with the deepest pockets that can go the longest are uh, that wins. You know, I, I want to know what measures you have in place to ensure that justice is still achieved in the in the district court without sacrificing justice for the sake of expedience. Well, I, I, I come back to you, you've always got a balance. Okay. And it, it is a balance between those three but things. But you don't have any specific the, measures the, at the, the moment. The substantive justice, so, but also the the affordability and the efficiency. And I tell you what, you, if you haven't got that efficiency, justice delayed, justice denied, that's no justice either. So why did the last national government cap the number of judges at 160 and substantially narrow the criteria for who could work 
as an acting judge? Well, see, I'm not sure that the feedback you've got is entirely accurate. Now, look, I'm sure there are. There's always capacity constraints at all stages of the game. But you take our night court's idea. The reason I say that is because I, what I hear consistently from lawyers, actually, is it's not necessarily a judicial resource constraint. Actually, they just haven't got the courtroom. So if we were do, to do things to clear the backlogs in the evenings, for example, uh, in the weekends, that could be a potential part of, of the answer. We, we've talked about um, judicial JPs, potentially doing some of the lower level stuff, right? Like the bail hearings, maybe some of the, the lesser defended hearings. Maybe they could do those in the evenings to clear the black How are judges going to take this? You're saying work evenings, work over the weekends? Well, the, the judges I know, and I know a few, uh, they're a typically cheery sort of a bunch, I'm sure. But I, I would sort of say this to them. Um, we're not talking about necessarily radical for mm. the sake of it, but we are saying, you know, if you, if you accept my premise that you've got a system that is in some parts broken, that's taking too long, that costs too much, actually you need some creative and bold ideas. I think everyone in the sector agrees there is a problem with the speed at which justice is being achieved at the moment. The Criminal Bar Association says one of the contributing factors to the delays, and, and you talked about the time people are spending on remand at the moment, are the changes that the national government made to bail laws in 2013. Would you consider reversing those changes? No, uh, and I think they worked. I think they're part of the reason. I remember well. I was on the Justice Select Committee at the time. I know. I know. I know. Uh, Chief District Court Judge or former Chief District Court Judge Jan Marie Duke uh, pointed out exactly the same thing. Noted that the impact of tighter bail laws have significantly contributed to the unprotected, uh, unprojected growth in defendants remaining in custody. This is the problem you just but identified. Here's the, here's the, here's the former District Court Judge yes. and the Criminal Bar Association greatly. saying this is the problem. But here's the answer. I I don't think you somehow solve issues um, by, uh, in Jacinda Ardern's words, being kind and going soft on crime. Right? I think you keep the bail laws strong. You actually do need to be tough on these things uh, to ensure you're doing a good job. But what you do do at the other end is you make sure the efficiency, the affordability and so on is there so you get to the hearing sooner. Would you put more uh, money into courts? Mr Bridges? Well, I think if you look at the sort of things I'm talking about in the short term, to clear a backlog that is there where the trend is up both in civil and criminal justice, it may well require additional uh, resource. I don't think that is the mm. long-term answer, mm. though. And I come back to it. I don't think it is just a question of more judges, more lawyers. I think often it's using those courtrooms more efficiently, uh, getting judicial JPs in, doing some of the lesser work to free up the judges for the significant complicated did, stuff. Did you consult uh, former National MP Chester Burroughs when putting together your policies? <laughs> some of it I think it's fair to say he wasn't consulted on. Why are you laughing? It's pretty simple, because my friend Chester Burroughs, and he's a great friend, uh, is a Chardonnay liberal on this stuff. He knows my views. He's, I don't think that. If what he's he a Chardonnay liberal, why was he appointed as the as the minister for courts under a national because government? Because he's a great guy. He was the, the associate justice and minister. And the national party is a conservative liberal party. But but I don't say this to you um, because you get it on the Twitter sphere. Some sort of view that that I'm not genuine. I'm, I'm my interested views. that you're calling him a Chardonnay a Chardonnay liberal. I mean, he he says that your approach to law and order is that of a cynical vote grabber. That you are ignoring scientific evidence. He. he up the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group. Like I say, he's a former Minister for Courts I'm, and Associate Minister for I Justice. I am disappointed that Chester would say that because here's the deal. When I first came to Parliament, I was on the Justice Select Committee that he chaired. I know well that he has had deeply long-held views 
that are, uh, are different to mine. Mm. But I would hope he also knows that my views, that actually you do need to be tough on crime, that it does matter, are also deeply held and genuine. See, I find it interesting you say the tough on crime thing. New Zealand police say the New Zealand murder rate is at its lowest point in 40 years. The Global Peace Index says New Zealand is the second safest country in the world. This is from Sir Peter Gluckman, the former uh, Chief Science Advisor to the Prime Minister, elected under the last national government. New Zealand's recorded crime levels are at the lowest seen since the late 1970s. I'll be interested to know exactly when that was, because the reality it was last is, year. Well, the reality is today, serious crime and cases in our courts are up quite significantly. If you look at well, patched well, gang well, members... Sir Peter Gluckman, the, the, the former Chief Science Advisor to John Key and to the Prime Minister, would dispute that. I have to ask you about a couple of different uh, points quickly. Would you support moving Auckland Port to Whangarei? I mean, I think the first point is just a deeply practical point: is the current government couldn't organise a booze up in a brewery. I think whether it's houses, whether it's transport, so if you're they a government, find this stuff wouldn't you? Tough, if, you tough. if you're the if you're the if you're the so, party to do it, so then, would you move? The, the reason I raise that is because I think it is a legitimate, serious question to ask. Right? Should we move the port? But but I say to New Zealanders, even if you say the answer to that mm. is yes, from then even for a competent government, it is a very complex and difficult. Who owns it? Who pays for that move? Um, where does would, it move? Would, would what you, infrastructure is required? Okay, but but would you be prepared to make a call? Would you be in a position to make a call on moving the port by the next election or by the make, end of next year? To make a call, I would want to see a serious work through Business Coast case um, that, that the likes of Treasury say has a good process to it. We have not seen that yet. Given the scrutiny over the New Zealand First Foundation at the moment, mm. are you at this stage prepared to rule out a coalition with Winston Peters and well, New Zealand it's, First? It's premature to do that because the facts are alleged and I think we need to see where the process in terms of the Electoral Commission and so on goes. But what I can say to you very clearly is it doesn't make it more likely we'll go with them. I do think it makes it less likely. National also uses trusts. You, like Labor, have big-ticket fundraising dinners. Do you think voters in New Zealand should know more about who is contributing to political parties? Well, I think the reality is, uh, if you think about the publicity around National, it's very much because you do know more. We do disclose. You mentioned our uh, foundation. The reality of that foundation is we apply the precisely same mm. rules that we apply, apply to the National Party. So are you satisfied so with the limits and rules as they stand? Uh, not entirely. There's a Justice Select Committee process going on right now now that I think will recommend changes in relation to uh, certain aspects of foreign donations and the like. But let me give you something on the fundamental issue here um, that I appreciate others will disagree with, but I don't believe in state funding, which is where some would want to take this debate. I think the rules are that are in place, were they followed? If the facts we see in the New Zealand First case are, are factually correct, uh, would result in illegalities, and so I don't think it's a simple question of, oh, well, let's just go to state funding. That is National Leader Simon Bridges. Hey, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. The panel's next. We're going to dig into the debate over donations to political parties. Do, uh, do voters have the right to know more about who gives money to our politicians? And anti-poverty campaigners say they despair at the lack of progress in helping struggling families. But after two years in government, is that good enough? We'll ask Green co-leader Marama Davidson. Well, with the greatest respect, 
we would welcome the investigation by the Electoral Commission because a whole lot of people are making fake news, false allegations, and we'll prove that to you. And Mr Peters, can the public trust you? Of course they can. Always have been able to trust me. That is, of course, New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters. So no answers yet on the mysterious New Zealand First Foundation. He will, however, have to answer questions from the Electoral Commission, which is looking into claims. His party received donations that should have been declared. Let's bring in the panel on this. Laura O'Connell-Rapita, the Director of Action Station, and Liam here, Palmerston North lawyer and National Party member. Kia ora kōrua. Kia ora. Laura, I'll start with you. Hmm. Considering our current electoral financing laws as they stand, does money buy influence in New Zealand politics, do you think? I mean, I think undoubtedly it buys influence. I think um, when we're talking about it, it's really important to put it in practical terms for people who maybe haven't worked on electoral campaigns. But when you're talking about big budgets um, versus not so big budgets, it's the difference between being able to you know, pay to have leaflets dropped in every single letterbox in a neighbourhood versus um, you know, trying to mobilise volunteers who are busy with their lives and you know, bills to pay and jobs to do and all of those sorts of things to do the equivalent. And it's, mm. it just, it's not a level playing field. So if you, if you say it buys influence, though, you say that, that uh, persons or organisations that donate to political parties, even if they declare those donations, are essentially buying influence? Well, one of the things that we know is that... So currently, under the Electoral Act, if people want to... Um, contribute donations anonymously, mm. over $1,500, they can do so. Um, but it means that they are anonymous both to the public and also to the political party that they're donating to. So the way it works is an individual or an organisation mm. gives money to the Electoral Commission. They say, I want it to go to National or Labour. Mm. The Electoral Commission sort of aggregates all of those donations, transfers it at regular intervals. But between 2015 and 2018, only $150,000 was transferred in that way, which means that donors who are donating large sums of money are not choosing to donate through the route in which they have, in, in which they remain anonymous. They're choosing to make themselves known because they know that if they donate sums of money, they're essentially buying political favours and political influence. I'm loath to throw out the term quid pro quo this early in our conversation, <laughs> but, but uh, Liam, would you agree with that assessment? Do, does money buy influence in New Zealand politics? See, I don't think we know that it does. I don't think it's the type of thing that you can actually easily measure. I think it depends a lot about the, the party that's in, um, mm. in government. Uh, and, the, and the, the means of the fundraising and things like that. Um, the fact that we don't know is, of course, a problem in of itself because it's probably quite an important thing to know. Um, I, you know, I, I, in, in terms of um, the ability to donate anonymously over and above the limits, um, yep, that does exist at the moment. Of course, there are limits to how much a party can receive through that route. Um, that's in the Electoral Act. Um, but there's no way of really being able to measure whether or not um, people buy influence apart from um, things coming out in the news and the press reporting on it, and that's what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. You know, but it's all circumstantial, so we don't know. Laura, what do you think about anonymity in donations? Should any political donation be allowed to be anonymous? No, I don't think it should be allowed to be anonymous. Um, unless they're doing it through the process that I just described that mm. exists already in, the, the, direct to in party, our law. The, the, the direct to party donations. From my perspective, I think that we need to be... I think all donations should be uploaded online and in real mm. time so that members of the public and members of the press can have scrutiny over those donations. I also think that... Um, uh, I mean, I think the big solution here that you're probably going to ask a, about a little bit later is obviously we need to uh, be moving towards publicly funding elections. 
Um, but in lieu of the fact that that's probably not very popular among voters at this mm. point, I think at the very least we could be banning donations that come from people and organisations that work in harmful industries. So I'm talking about tobacco, alcohol, big pharma, property speculators I mean, and developers. That's a, that is a subjective standard though, isn't it? Well, no, I think we can, um, I think we can look at the harms that are being caused to people's wellbeing and I think that the wellbeing metrics that the government sure have put Liam, forward I'm now... Sure, I'm <laughs> sure Liam has some thoughts on that. Yeah, I think there is an interest in, in an for one thing, uh, you know, if you look at the history of um, democracy and the way in which um, disclosure laws were used to um, target and harass groups like the NAACP in um, the civil rights era in the United States, you can see that if you have to put out a big list there of everyone who's donated to what political party, uh, and in the modern age where anyone can bring that up with a click of a mouse, that is a recipe for harassment and for, uh, for retribution. And I think there's a real interest in um, letting people uh, undertake political activity in that way with some expectation of privacy. Now, it's not an absolute right, of course not. And when you get to a certain point, you do need to have some sort of disclosure, I think, or some sort of mechanism to uh, give the public that sort of assurance. But I wouldn't write off the privacy interests in donations just yet. What about state funding? I think that... Uh, <laughs> I'd probably, on balance, I'd be opposed to it. And one of the reasons is I think that is a good way to entrench incumbency. I mean, the, all mm -hmm. the formulas for, uh, for state funding that are in use around the world tend to go on who's already in power, what their sort of vote percentage share is, perhaps some other metrics like that. Uh, but that's raising a, 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 an advantage over new players, new entrants into the field. And I think that any, if you, the minute that you went down that road, you would start to ossify the, um, you would start to ossify and harden the political status quo. Laura, it is likely to be very unpopular with mm, voters. How is. do you get that across the line? Well, I think, um, I think it's a, something that we move towards over time because I acknowledge that it is very unpopular at this point. And I think the way that we move towards that is making other electoral mm. forms as we head towards that sort of ultimate goal. And so what I mean by that is, you know, there could be. Um, uh, some degree of public funding of mm. uh, of local elections, um, and, and or for example, we could be capping donations, uh, just making tweaks that build trust between citizens and their electoral systems, so that they over time see the value in it and therefore want to put their money behind it. It's interesting to consider some of the sums that are donated in New Zealand politics, though, because when you put them in, in an international context, they are paltry to say the least. Um, I, I want to consider events in Australia though over the last 24 hours or so. Of course 60 Minutes has reported allegations that Chinese agents in Australia essentially tried to install an MP by funding his campaign of up to a million dollars. Are we being alarmist in New Zealand in considering a situation like Australia and considering the possibility for something like that happening here? Well, look, if it could happen in Australia, it could happen here. And there's no doubt about that. And I think that's really more of a question about um, uh, intelligence mm. and security rather than how we um, fund our democracy, so to speak. I mean, it really comes down to the fact that while we have to have a good and pragmatic and healthy relationship with China, we need to be on guard to the fact that it's a totalitarian uh, communist dictatorship. 
uh, and that there are security uh, implications for that, but they are security questions in my view, not political mm. donation questions. Uh, you have put forward an interesting concept for political funding that essentially guarantees everyone anonymity. Can you just talk us through how yeah, it works? Yeah, well it's not, I didn't come up with it, I take the credit for introducing it into New Zealand. <laughs> but uh, I mean really, uh, what, you, what you would do is, it's like the, like the scheme that Laura uh, described, which already exists, uh, whereby you can donate to a blind trust, um, the blind trust then uh, releases funds to the party at a regular interval mm. um, on the basis that, um, that, that they don't disclose who the donors were or how much were received and what amounts. What I would do is I would make that compulsory, right? So you can only donate to politics through a, through a, a registered uh, blind trust probably operated by the public trust or some So the parties never know with, with, with absolute surety exactly where their money has come from. If the scheme is well designed, mm. it should be, have mechanisms, mechanisms in it so you can never verify who made a donation. What do you think of that, Laura? I think it's a great idea. I think it's quite similar to what already exists, yeah. though. And yeah. I think one of the issues I have with the idea when we were discussing it earlier in the green room is um, your idea, I guess, has like there's no limit to the amount of money that people can spend um, in terms of influence influencing politics and for most New Zealanders making a $500 donation to a political mm. party is actually really out of reach and so if you compare that to you know industries that are making millions of dollars a year mm. and they are able to make much larger donations than that it's just not equal. So give us your political takes how do you see this playing out for the government over the coming weeks months potentially year? Yeah I mean I think I mean, what I would like to see um, Jacinda Ardern do is use this opportunity to push for electoral reform that can prevent this sort of thing from happening again, and that is putting a cap on donations, um, in increasing transparency of political donations mm. by making sure that they're online and uploaded in real time, and then also banning donations from harmful industries. What do you see happening, Liam? I don't think it's the end of the government, but I, don't, I think unless Jacinda Ardern is able to distance herself from it, and depending on what comes out, it's New Zealand First Syndrome again. It's just going to continue to dog the government. It will become an open sore that will damage it permanently. Kia ora We appreciate your insights. You. Uh, Liam here and Laura O'Connell-Rapida. Another day, another report revealing the extent of our poverty problem. 50,000 working households live in poverty, according to the Human Rights Commission. If having a job doesn't fix poverty, what will? Green co-leader Marama Davidson is with us next. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back. Another report on poverty hit our desks today. This time it details the 50,000 New Zealand households living in poverty despite having at least one person in paid work. The report by the Human Rights Commission measures poverty as 60% of the median income, so that's roughly $600 a week. Now, last week on Q&A, Children's Commissioner Andrew Beecroft pleaded for bolder action from the coalition government. What do you make of the government's response to the Welfare Working Group's recommendations? Thus far, inadequate. In fact, I'd go further. Weak, supine, passive. We've got to deliver on those recommendations. We can't fiddle, as it were, while Rome burns, while 100,000 children remain in disadvantage. Change and action is urgently required. Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Kia ora, Jack. Weak supine and passive. Those are the words of the Children's Commissioner in considering the government's response to the Welfare Working Group's recommendations. Do you agree with him? I'm really pleased we've got champions like him. They're fighting hard for the well-being of our tamariki and I'm really glad that we've got him and many other voices pushing us. Look, um, for at least 30 years 
benefits and our social security system has been degraded, it has been gutted and so this government actually wants to do something about that. We're not moving as fast or as bold as I would like, Jack, but the fact that this government and the Minister has sent a clear directive to work and income officers to end the hostility, to say please help people get their entitlements when they need it, is an incredible start and we've also got to lift core benefit amounts. He says you've got to lift them by 20%, 20% overnight. The government has so far accepted three out of 42 recommendations from that working group. Why aren't they acting faster? Look, this is a start and we do, lifting core benefit rates is a priority that we have to do immediately. So, we so why don't you? Oh, we're getting there. We're no, but working why, on why it. Not just, why, not, why not just do it? You've got a $7.5 billion surplus yep. at the moment. I'll be really honest, this is a political decision hmm. and that's why I'm making it clear where the Greens stand, that this has to happen. That for 30 years those benefits have been kept so hmm. low that a 20% increase would actually only bring us up to par with where we should have been so, a long so who's time holding ago. it up if it's a political decision um look there are more players than just the greens clearly so, so who, who is it and so i'm not going to name people but there Why is not? well because we are doing the work we are starting on this work um, we've already made some changes that are important and i know not enough of the welfare expert advisory mm. group plan has been put into place and we want to see their whole plan adopted three out of 42 Madam yeah we, we, we've got to see 42. all of them i'm not even disagreeing with anything you've got here because i'm thinking of the people in my community so, who so need tell us, us to then. Do this put, work. put the heat on the people who you think are responsible for this. And we continue to do that. And we continue to work and be very clear that this has to happen immediately, that people are relying on politicians, that successive governments have kept it so low for mm. so long that this has got to change. We've got a $7.5 billion surplus. We're pledging to keep debt at 20% of GDP at the moment, one of the lowest levels in the world, if not the OECD. Um, what do you say when you're in those conversations with, with Labor and with New Zealand First? What do you say? That this is a confidence and supply agreement mm. or an agreement that we have with Labor and it has to happen. And that people need us to make sure everyone can live with some decency and with some dignity. That it's not good enough that we haven't made these decisions yet and we will keep making it very clear what needs to happen. But it's not working at the moment, is it? Not yet, Jack. It will happen. It absolutely when? will happen, and before when, when the end of this term, this is what we're working for. So, so what will happen before the end of this term? I want to see an increase in core benefits, If and this government will make those changes if it is truly committed to improving the well-being of those who are struggling the most, and so this is what we're working on. And if not, what if they don't? And then the people will get to judge us, and rightfully so, and all of those uh, people like Judge Beecroft um, mm. will keep their voices loud and strong and we will keep working. But here's the thing, you're two years deep. Yeah. You know, you're two years deep, you've got these billions of dollars just sitting there at the moment. Essentially this government has prioritised running surpluses instead of helping our most vulnerable people. I mean, the, the Welfare Working Group said that core benefits needed to be raised up to 40-odd percent. 47. Which is enormous. Yeah. But you're two years deep. And, and if you wait... 
however many months into the budget and for the for the benefits to be raised at that stage. What do you say to the people who've been, who've been sitting there in poverty for the last two years you've been in charge? That we're not giving up, that we are going to make these changes and that the Welfare Expert Advisory Group, mm. the most diverse group of experts doing the biggest deep dive into our social security system possibly ever that we've done in this country, was a big part of work from this government actually, that a mm. directive to ensure people could go in and get help is a big massive first important Three step out of and, that, yeah, and we've got to go faster Three and make stronger changes and so we will, we will be very clear these changes need to be made, absolutely Jack. Do you think the voting public cares about poor people? Yes, I do. In fact, I know New Zealanders care about making sure mm. people get a fair deal, that are supported in times of need. I know that our country is a kind, understanding one mm. that gets that it's simply not good enough, that this country has enough for everyone to be living with dignity. I know that this is true about our communities and our people. How well do you know Carmel Cipolloni? I work with her closely all the time. What do you think of her? Oh, look, I'm going to be clear, she gets this, um, and we're working on this. So who doesn't? And so it's, it's a big player of, you know, it's a big mm. arena where a lot of people are involved. Um, I'm here to be very clear about what the Greens know must happen and to also remind people to have hope because mm. we have seen some beginning step changes that are important. Mm. I mentioned uh, the surplus and the debt targets. Yeah. Of course, the Greens and Labor signed the budget responsibility rules, which dictated those targets. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think the Greens should have signed those rules? Even, you know, I, I was quite clear, even before the benefit of hindsight, that at a time when we've got people mm. living in garages and in cars, um, when we've got a housing crisis, when our environment and our climate need protecting, that it's not appropriate to run debt and surplus targets. Was it a mistake? Um, the, our members have, you may know Jack, mm. just put our policy through a review. Mm. Um, I know that's been put out there and we're saying... Do you think it was a mistake to sign Yeah, that? I think it's not appropriate. Um, for us to not understand the, the value of supporting mm. strong public core services, absolutely, and you know that's not a secret for people. So you wouldn't support budget responsibility rules going to the next election? No, and we've been quite clear we will expect to see mm. the Greens going into the next election with something quite different, something that prioritises core public services. Do you think it would be easier to govern if New Zealand First wasn't in the picture? Uh, now, look, that's going to depend on the numbers um, that come back at the next election. And no, I just I, don't mean uh, passing look, your policy priorities. It's not particularly just New Zealand First that we need to be focusing on this. There are three political parties mm. and we all need to make these decisions together. Your colleague Gareth Hughes, of course, is leaving at the next yeah. election. He says the government's been too cautious, that there are pockets of transformation, but that overall this government has not been transformational. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, it is. We just have to look around us. This government hasn't been transformational. Not yet. We've been making, again, we have been making some important changes. I want to say, Jack, that in budget this year, mm. government, for example, tagged the increase in mm. benefits to the increase in wages. $13, $13 so a year by 2023. Years ago. You know, that should That'll make happened. a difference of $13 so that, a year by 2023. And so that's something. For people who have five extra dollars is meaningful, that's something. I, I'm not going to mock it. Mm. I'm going to say that have some hope that the step changes are starting and the Greens' responsibility is to speak up for those struggling the most. Let me ask this, this finally then. You haven't been successful in passing a capital gains tax, 
Poverty is still a major issue. There is an enormous waiting list for state housing. The election is next year. The Greens have been in a confidence and supply agreement with Labor. Do they Greens deserve to be re-elected next year? I'm really pleased about what we have managed to do. I'm pleased that this government has built more state houses than any previous government, over 2,200 I think it is. I'm pleased that we removed the unfair penalty for people to name the other parent, those who are receiving a sole parent benefit. Three out of I'm 42. pleased that we have limited the amount of rent increases to once per year. Mm. Um, and so there are those important, many important things that only the, you know, we would have only seen with the Greens. And yes, I want to see more Green MPs in government so we can go even further and faster. Tēnā koe. Marama Davidson, thanks for your time. Kia ora. Stick around, we will have your feedback next. Kia ora te whana. welcome back. A lot of you had views on our interview with defence lawyer Marie Dyberg QC tonight. Lois Gilmore posted on Facebook, Wow, I can feel the chill from Marie from here. No empathy for victims as they're just an obstacle in the way of her clients. Juliet Moses tweeted, Marie Dyberg QC was very good on Q&A and explained some things about the Mullane trial and the conduct of the defence generally that have been missing from the discussion so far. On our interview with Simon Bridges on changes National would look to make to our court system, Smitty tweeted, faster doesn't mean better, you actually have to resource them. And Satnev tweeted, the system is not broken, the judiciary do a fine job at the highest level. That's us for Q&A this week. Just so you know, next week at this time we will have an extended interview with Jacinda Ardern. Tonight is up next. Thanks for watching and na mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your messages. We'll see you next Monday at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.